It's time to awaken your inner traveler and zip around the world as money is sent to the people who rely on it. Welcome to Money Travels, presented by Visa. Arabica coffee beans are fragile. They're less resilient to pests and other threats than the aptly named Robusta coffee beans. But the coffee they provide is less bitter and has fueled the specialty coffee movement. But their fragility makes them harder to grow. So the majority of Arabica coffee farms... is actually from small landholders, people that own 5 to 10 hectares of land and run a small family business on collecting coffee. So that's the majority of coffee that's in the world. Ed Canty is the general manager of Cooperative Coffees. They're a coffee importer owned collectively by 23 roasters in North America, and they import fair trade and organic coffee from about 40 producers around the world. They've been at it for a while, and Ed has worked with some of these growers for more than 20 years. Geopolitically, these are not the safest places in the world. It's tough to get access to market for a lot of these producers. It's tough not to get robbed. We've had deaths and robberies in our supply chain, and these producer organizations who we work with are really good at creating systems to protect themselves against that. But when you're a producer and you're walking down that mountain to sell your coffee and someone is there with a lot of money paying you, you always got to ask, why is that person safe in doing it? Because they're paying in cash, to clarify. Sometimes it's an MOU and the helicopter comes in and pays them all, or there's various models out there. Some of them are looking at more technified means, but still cash is king. Cash is king because these are not rich people. And a lot of coffee producers live in abject poverty and you can't fault them for it. They're going to take the money they can get that day because they have to go feed their kids. But there's another challenge. The price of coffee fluctuates, sometimes dramatically. This puts the business in the middle, the exporter, the producer cooperative, in a really precarious position because they have to determine when they buy that coffee from the producer, what price do I pay them? Let's say that their policy is to set that at the morning market is at $1.80. We're going to pay $1.80 to producers today. Well, we've seen markets that go from $1.80 per pound up to $2 a pound in one day. Hell, in the last three weeks, the market went from $2 down to $1.55 of where it's today's. And that volatility, whether it's up or down, really puts these businesses at risk because they're collecting at one price. And when they go to sell it to the market, it's a different price. And that's where efficient money movement comes in. What if, instead of paying cash, Ed could pay his farmers in real time, straight into their digital wallet? And then they could turn around and use the money in their digital wallets to put food on the table for their kids without risking their lives. Welcome to Money Travels, presented by Visa. I'm Indre Viscontis. On this podcast, we follow the money as it zips around the world, enabling our fellow humans to survive and thrive. And we talk to the experts who are building the tools that will transform the next generation of money movement. I remember getting my first real wallet as a kid. I felt so grown up with this little leather carrying case for cash and coins and the credit cards that I didn't have. I would put little pieces of paper that I'd cut into the size of credit cards just to fill up the empty slots. And organizing money by denomination was somehow satisfying. I took pride in how neat and tidy it all looked. And I had that first wallet for a long time. I developed an attachment to it, as it was the key to rewarding things, like buying a piece of candy from the variety store between my house and my school, 
or holding signifiers of my identity, cards that showed other people who I was, my name and my birth date, my status as a student, or eventually a licensed driver. Over time, though, it became messy and dirty as I rushed to find bus transfers in between cash or subway tokens amongst the coins and jammed receipts wherever I could fit them. Recently, Lee, Gan, and Liu, a group of researchers in Malaysia, where mobile payment systems are widely adopted, conducted a simple survey of Gen Y and Gen Z e-wallet users, and they found that the visual appeal of a digital wallet impacted the perceived enjoyment of its users. Even on a smartphone, a nice-looking wallet is more fun. The visual style of the wallet, however, didn't affect their satisfaction. Sometimes a wallet is just a wallet, a tool with a purpose, not a fashion statement or a toy. But the more these survey takers enjoyed their digital wallet, the more likely they were to give in to impulse purchases. What this all means for our financial future, our behavioral economics as our finances go digital, isn't all that straightforward. But what is clear is that the rise of digital wallets is here. And to help me sort out the repercussions and understand the infrastructure behind them are two guests today. Pankaj Sharma, Global Lead, Wallets, Product, and Commercialization at Visa. And Ani Sani is the co-founder and chief business officer of TerraPay, a company whose mission is to create a safe and accessible global payments highway. Pankaj and Ani, welcome to Money Travels. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks and very good to be here. So with the growing adoption of smartphones and digital wallets, people are really turning to digital payment solutions to pay anyone anywhere. So Pankaj, let's start with you. What exactly is a digital wallet? And what can you tell us about the technology behind this innovation? In the developed and the developing world, the word carries different meanings. At a very generic level, a digital wallet, also referred to as an e-wallet or an electronic wallet, they are mobile apps that store financial information or store value and enable the wallet holder to make a payment to a merchant. So that's one use case. And the other is primarily they also do person-to-person transfers. So that's kind of the general definition, financial information stored in a mobile wallet enabling the payment. Obviously, all of this is enabled by a technology stack. The technology stack has three primary components. One, secure storage of financial credentials or value. Two, the ability to initiate the payment by the wallet holder, including, of course, authenticating the payment. So this is a payment getting made. And then three, generally, by nature, they are two-way payment instruments. So not only can you send money or make a payment, but you can also receive the payment into a wallet. But that, in a sense, Andre, would be the basic definition of a wallet and the stack behind it. Certainly, you can exchange money using a smartphone without involving a digital wallet. Can you tell us about that difference? The history came from mobile telephony, primarily In emerging markets, parts of Africa, parts of Asia, parts of Latin America, that's where they became very successful. I think the example that you spoke earlier, the coffee example, I think that part of the world, mobile money became very, very successful, added to financial inclusion and then made commerce and money movement reasonably simple. I think the primary difference would be that most wallets that you would use in the US would have an underlying financial instrument attached to it. And we ordinarily refer to them as pays. So you would go to a store and you would make a payment using a mobile phone. But at the core of it, there would be primarily a credit card or a debit card. 
high possibility that being a Visa product used to make payments, while mobile money is typically stored value in that app. So Ani, tell us how TerraPay fits into this ecosystem. What does the company do? We have built a global infrastructure platform to be able to move cross-border money the most compliant and the most effective way. All that put together. In 2015, when we incorporated the company, the challenge in front of us was very, very simple when it comes to opportunities. We looked at how we could make cross-border payments 100% digital. It's a challenge for all of us in this space where we need to ensure is money coming from the right sources. We are able to track and trace the source at any point of time. And KYC is, uh, you know, know your customer. So you should be able to know who is sending, why is that person sending, and to who we are sending the money. Once we are able to do that, I think the world will continue to be a good space to be in. On your website, TerraPay describes one of the first payments to travel on their platform as $13 sent from Dubai to Tanzania by a worker who cleaned hotel rooms to support his family. And to me, that's such a vivid picture and that the website continues to say that TerraPay was founded to ensure this man's money would receive the respect, security and urgency that the largest business to business payments do. So tell us about this goal of TerraPay to provide the same kinds of solutions or at least an equivalent opportunity for workers who are not particularly wealthy. We started TerraPay on that premise itself to be able to process small value transactions. And we talk about small value transactions, the definition could be even a dollar. Someone should be able to send it across the world at any point of time. When we were whiteboarding this project in a coffee shop in 2015, my other co-founders actually came from a telecom background. And telecom is a fascinating business. The reason why it is fascinating is because If you see globally, when the mobile phones and the mobile technology came on the forefront, there were two set of companies who actually emerged out of this. One was a set of companies who looked at mobile as a voice carriers. And there are some companies who looked at this technology as data carriers. If you fast forward now, the phone and the voice companies have all gone. It's only the data companies who continue to prevail. What it showed to us was your services need to be in such a way where you should be able to process even the smallest of transactions. We took that as one of our ethos on how we should build the platform. That's the reason we are of only digital platform. We don't touch cash on a platform. A lot of people now think it was a great idea because of COVID. But 2015, there was no COVID, yeah? But we built on that. So we are a fully digital platform. And then we looked at saying is, hey, The smallest transaction actually is the most important transaction for someone to send. If someone is sending $10 or $15, it's actually most of the times the most important transaction for that particular person, the sender or the receiver, because someone's waiting at a pharmacy, somebody is waiting at a grocery to actually buy bread so that they can go back and feed the family. So that's What we looked at and we said, how can I make this transaction 24 by 7 instantly? And that's where we strive to kind of get to that position where 90% of our transactions should be delivered within minutes and not within hours. So now if you go back to the point which you refer on the website, this is the real life example. We were fascinated by this one person who actually sent $13. We were intrigued. We said, why would somebody send $13 of money when the cost of that transaction could have been $3, $4? 
So we called that individual in Dubai. And he said, I landed from Tanzania to Dubai four days back. And he said, I get paid on a Friday. And I got my first paycheck, which was whatever that money was. And I wanted to send money immediately back home, irrespective of what that money was. And we asked him, could you not have sent on a Saturday? Could you not send on a Sunday? And what hit us was, this person said, my wife was actually at a grocery trying to buy bread for the family. Think about it. So she is waiting at the grocery. This individual has sent the money. It reaches to the wife in 30 seconds. She is able to pay at the grocer, get the bread. It hit us. It hit us in a way that we made a position where we would like to not just look at not delivering transactions real-time to wallets, but also to bank accounts. That was the trigger, honestly, of being able to now, now we say we can deliver to 4.5 billion bank accounts, 1.5 billion mobile wallets. So to us, what it really does from a TerraPay perspective is look at the value behind that small value transaction and see how can we make it more cost effective and being able to deliver value and trust to the consumer. Pankaj, can you tell us about the scale of digital wallets? How many users are estimated to exist around the world, if you have numbers that can speak to that? And how many different kinds of wallets are available to them? As Visa Direct and as Visa as a group, we're enabling money movement both domestic and cross-border. Obviously, we started with cards. So Visa Cards was our first port of call. Then we extended it into bank accounts. And then we started looking at the wallet market. And when we started looking at these cross-border money movement flows and wallets, so two things came up to me. If you map the top inbound remittance markets for the Chinas, the Indias, the Nigerias, Philippines, Vietnam, then you look at a parallel map on the largest mobile wallet populations, you'll be surprised they're kind of a perfect match. When you looked at that chart, that if we needed to be relevant as a cross-border money movement provider, we needed to expand our reach into wallets as well. Typically, what mobile wallets, as I just defined at the beginning of this discussion, would be in the range of about 2.6 billion wallet holders. So I think that's the scale. And then various projections are that they'll move, onion. I think you have that number close to 4.5 billion in 2025. So that's the number that gets spoken about. I think primarily the definition of most of these mobile money wallets exist in large parts in Asia Pacific, parts of Africa, parts of Latin America, and then increasingly in Eastern Europe as well. If you look at the entities that issue these wallets, the largest component of them would be mobile networks. But increasingly we're seeing as local regulations see the value of wallets, non-mobile money operators are issued by financial institutions and banks. Ani and I have always discussed that in certain markets, you would see that mobile wallets as a population would be either equal to bank accounts or they'd be larger than bank accounts. So that's their importance in the larger digital payment ecosystem. I think it's that big an opportunity. When we go to these markets, you would see them using mobile wallets as an instrument to pay. To a point where I actually asked a lot of our colleagues a simple question. You get paid in your bank account. Yes or no? And they said, yes, absolutely. So when you want to pay anything, they move money from their bank account to a mobile wallet instrument, do a P2P transaction, and then use this mobile wallet to do all their daily consumption. 
whereas they could do the same transactions from their checking or a bank account. It's fascinating. I said, why would you ever do that? And the answer was simple, saying it's habit. That is where I think the mobile wallets have gone with the virality of the product. It just gives you a good sense of how consumers are looking at ease and how mobile wallets have really gone deeper into the usage part of it. It's really interesting from a psychological perspective. There's been some discussion about people who got into a habit of overspending during the pandemic, buying luxury goods that maybe they couldn't afford because it sort of helped them feel better when everything was locked down. And one of the solutions that people are suggesting is that you separate your cards. Let's say you have a number of credit cards. You use one for groceries and gas and staples. You use another one for, say, maybe travel or luxury goods. And there's some evidence that, in fact, people do have an association with a particular card. So when they pull out their luxury goods card, <laughs> there is this memory and this association. And we know that that's really at the core of habit and habitual behavior. Pankaj, do you have anything to add to this idea on how mobile wallets or digital wallets in particular might either benefit or how they might shape behavior as a result of these kinds of habits? I'll just add two things here. One is like in our part of the world, so I'm based in Singapore and I give that example. When we started this initial discussion, a lot of folks felt that mobile wallets are only for underbanked or unbanked people. That was true five years back. You'll get customers for whom mobile wallets is the only financial instrument that they have, and therefore that's the instrument that they use. And then there is a segment of customers like me. I have a bank account. I have a credit card. I have a debit card. But I also have a mobile wallet. I think going back into your question, in my head, I've kind of compartmentalized and convenience, right? Wherever I don't need to pull out my other, other payment means, right? Consumers do compartmentalize their spends. The underlying account that you get funds into becomes your primary spending account as well, right? So increasingly, as consumers who rely on overseas funds, and it could be consumers and it could be small businesses, it could be a freelancer getting the money. If I'm receiving money in a mobile wallet, that $300 that I've done a software job for, highly likely that I'm going to use that same underlying instrument for my spends, right? So I think it kind of becomes, to your point, becomes the preferred payment instrument one, out of convenience, I think Anya touched on that. Two, out of acceptance, where that's the only one that's accepted. And three, my primary funding source is getting into that instrument. Let's talk a little bit about the financial infrastructure that underlies wallets. And in particular, I've heard the analogy of walled gardens used to describe this infrastructure. What does that mean? And if they're walled, how does TerraPay work with Visa Direct to open up the world? The wallet infrastructure primarily has grown up to be a domestic payment instrument, right? So they started off like that, local KYC, local funding options, local usage options, right? So that's by nature becomes domestic. And also that it's what we, I think, in, in our industry terms, refer to as closed loop, the world garden that you're referring to, that you can only operate in your own ecosystem. So with our partnership, we are getting access to these 44 and growing markets and 88 and growing wallets across multiple countries, where now we integrate it into our Visa Direct system. And now we offer these capabilities to our both bank and non-bank partners globally. And of course, the capability comes with all, all the benefits that we spoke about. So obviously, the benefit to the recipient wallet ecosystem, as we said, is for the consumer 
sending and receiving becomes very simple, right? So illustrating an example, me in Singapore sending money to a friend in the Philippines. Now, all I need to know is his or hers mobile wallet ID or the handle as we call it. And then I go to my fintech or my bank provider in Singapore and saying, hey, I'm sending 200 pesos to my friend in the Philippines. They'll do the conversion between Visa and TerraPay. That'll happen. And then as they have the access and of course, you utilize the fund that they want to. TerraPay continues to build its own infrastructure by getting more deeper with doing inter and our connectivity with wallets. The underlining technology behind them was to offer P2P domestic transactions only. That's how they were built. So when Terapay looked at how we can bring interoperability between mobile wallets, which means a wallet consumer in one country should be able to pay or send money to a different mobile wallet anywhere else in the world. What it needed was it needed to have some kind of a platform which allows this movement of money in, again, in the most transparent and the most compliant way. And for these technology platforms to do anything related to even doing name checks on a mobile wallet platform is impossible because they're not meant to do that because, you know, it's just closed loop transactions. So what we built was an interoperable platform, an infrastructure which allows this movement of money, including, as Pankaj said, being able to do cross-border FX, whole consumer funds should be able to do check the first name, the last name, check it with you know, the databases of the world, is the money being used in the right way to the right people, all that put together. So that is what we continue to build. And where it becomes interesting is when you now bring the interoperable projects, when I say someone wants to send money from a bank account to a mobile wallet or a mobile wallet to a bank account, that also is interoperable kind of positions. And then with Visa, we're taking it to another level. We're saying is it could also be between wallets to cards or cards to wallets as well. So it becomes a position where you could have multiple alternate payment methods to fund or receive or send money from. And I think that is what this partnership is all about between TerraPay and Visa, to bring and make it instant by the definition of it. So Pankaj, I imagine that most people think of P2P and remittance payments as the primary uses for digital wallets. What are some of the other types of payment flows, especially for cross-border payments? Two, three use cases that are coming which are more business-oriented. Freelancer payout. So think of software developer or a designer in Colombo, Sri Lanka. He or she's done a project for someone in the UK or Singapore, and it's a time-bound or a fixed-fee project. Using a traditional bank transfer may not be that cost-effective, both for the sender and, and the recipient. So these are now translating into a wallet flow as well. So it's a freelancers we're seeing a lot. Increasingly, and, and I know Ani has a couple of anecdotes on that, these influencer payouts, these influencers are highly likely to own a mobile wallet. We're seeing them demand from them on low value, high velocity influencer payouts, the so freelancer payout, influencer payout, and then increasingly these marketplaces. I'm a small seller in Indonesia. I've set up a store in one of these big marketplaces. I add my wallet as a payment option. Speaking of influencers, a lot of whom are on the younger side in terms of generations, Ani, Gen Z, these are individuals, digital natives, they're adopting wallets more and more. And for many of them, this is their first point of entry into the financial system. Can you tell us about what you think are the implications of the fact that some of these individuals, they're not opening up an old school checking account at a bank. 
They're not even maybe going into a branch to open up their first account. They're opening up their phones and using them that way. It's an interesting question when we speak about Gen Z, but COVID actually changed all this. That's the way I see it. COVID has definitely made the whole transition to a digital landscape much faster. With Gen Z, it is actually just only way probably they want to transact. Even with us and with older generation, we see that happening and COVID has played a big role in that. And I think for therapy, actually it came as a blessing, honestly, because you have the legacy players who actually still move money and do a cash payout at locations and things like that was predominantly way how people send money back home. And that's changed completely. But coming back to the Gen Z, I think mobile plays a big role. Now I think kids don't carry wallets anymore. I think that's the fact of life. Everyone's looking for new ways and new technology. But I think those three positions, trust, fast, and being able to have control, I think is the three things which Gen Z will look for. But the underlining pillar on that is it needs to be fast. You need faster computers. You need faster mobile phones. I think the idea is being fast. So money also needs to move fast. And if you can bundle all this on a piece of handset, I think it is what we see the next generation is thriving for. And I think the underlining position on that is being 100% digital. I don't know in the next 10 years, 20 years, anybody is going to touch cash at all. So Pankaj, that gets us to the super apps and the space that people talk about as growing. Can you tell us what is a super app? What are the sort of benefits and drawbacks? And how does Visa see them growing? To me, effectively, it's like a supermarket. So it is that old transition where consumers have now got used to multiple use cases and applications. The classical examples will be apps that exist in parts of Asia where it's either transportation or it's P2P. That's been the primary use case. And then they've expanded to food deliveries, expanded to grocery deliveries. And in some cases where regulations allow them, they've got into the edges of banking. It varies market by market and also depends on each of these vertical categories. Are they best in class? I know in parts of UK and US, we haven't had that super apps as yet. They've started with one or two functionalities. At, at max, they've laddered up with two or three categories. To Ani's point, as the next generation starts living their life off the mobile app, any entity that can offer or address their immediate needs, like a daily need with one or two or three of these categories, starts gaining traction. Well, on Money Travels, we like to end each episode with some rapid-fire questions. So if you're ready, let's start. Pankaj, what do you think you'll miss most if cash no longer exists? I wouldn't miss anything. <laughs> Ani, what's the most exciting innovation that you're looking forward to in money movement? I think innovation on liquidity is going to be extremely key as we move forward. And the liquidity plays a big role in terms of money movement. Ani, what's the most common challenge you hear from digital wallet users? How can the wallets be able to do more, not just related to domestic usage, but cross-border usage? Pankaj, what aspect of money movement is more complicated than most people think? The compliance processes, I think, as both senders and recipients, we don't see it, but there's so much activity that goes behind the scene for all partners. So this is for either of you, or both. Can you predict the future of money movement with a single catchy phrase? Maybe, what, five, ten years? It's going to be as easy as sending a message back home. Compliant cashless society. Compliant cashless society. Very good. Well, Ani and Pankaj, thank you so much for being on Money Travels. 
Thank you for having us. Thanks, Indra. Thanks for listening to this episode of Money Travels. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe or follow the show and leave a review so more people can find it. Until next time, I'm Indre Viscontis, and this has been Money Travels, presented by Visa. Oh, and if you have a bit of extra time, here's some info on where your coffee comes from and what it takes to get it into your cup. When coffee is planted, it can take up to five years before it actually produces a yield. So it's a pretty big investment for a producer to plant and manage trees before they even get some value out of it. So when it comes time, it's the producer's job to go and pick those cherries. So they're bringing everything in and they bring it to a collection station. The milling process starts with wet milling. And wet milling is the removal of that outside mucilage, that cherry. They put the coffee in a water tank and it's for fermentation, or they might just lay it out on the ground with this mucilage to dry. And that's where you get some different flavors. From there, it goes to dry milling, which is normally a much bigger mill. Think of it like a coffee roaster who has a final product that they sell to their consumer, and they're blending these different origins to get our blend or a breakfast blend or whatever. Mm-hmm.